Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Hold on to your butts. Now, what shall we talk about? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to the Duel of the Greats podcast, folks. This week... It is week 14, and it is Freaky Friday week. So, as we alluded to last week, what that means is we're going to do... It's going to be a little bit different this week because we're not going to compare movies directly head-to-head like we've been doing for the previous 13 weeks. Rather, what we're going to do is look at... This is where the Freaky Friday comes in. Crossover actors between the two. We've kind of between the two directors, Steven Spielberg and Ridley Scott. Obviously, we, we've kind of talked about uh, in in weeks past some of the actors that have been in both movies, or I'm sorry, that have been in movies directed by both directors. Okay, so we're going to discuss those actors and see who got who got the best out of those actors. And that's how we're going to try and evaluate it, right? Not necessarily which movie was the best from those, but but which director got the best out of those actors. Because one of the categories we've always talked about each week has been sort of acting characterization and what that has, which which directors have excelled the most at that for, for those particular movies in that week. So this is sort of the the ultimate culmination of that as, as its own uh, its own episode almost, if you will. So just a quick rundown for the list here of the we have seven actors that we're going to this is not all inclusive but this is the seven that we've chosen uh, to to discuss and those are leonardo dicaprio who is in catch me if you can by spielberg body of lies by ridley scott eric bana who is in munich by spielberg and black hawk down by scott harrison ford who is in indiana jones movies with uh, by spielberg blade runner by scott anthony hopkins who's in hannibal by Ridley Scott, Amistad by Spielberg, Julianne Moore, Lost World, Jurassic Park, Lost World by Spielberg, also Hannibal by Ridley Scott, Jaiman Hansu, um, also Amistad by Steven Spielberg, and then Gladiator with Ridley Scott. And then our final one is Kate Capshaw, uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom from Steven Spielberg, and Black Rain by um, Ridley Scott. And Black Rain is one of those movies that we have not yet talked about. And there are a few movies that we have not yet talked about uh, that are going to be uh, discussed in this. Black Rain, obviously, is one of them. Munich from Steven Spielberg is another one. Indiana Jones, you heard the clip in uh, the, the in our intro that we have uh, about being history uh, with Indiana Jones. That That is obviously, we haven't talked about those yet, but we're going to talk about them this week. Hannibal, as I uh, just mentioned for a couple of the actors, directed by Ridley Scott, and then Amistad. From Steven Spielberg. So those are those are the movies that we haven't discussed specifically so far uh, this um, so far this uh, this season, but that will be discussed today. So um, you know, normally we kind of talk about our our first experiences with these movies, but obviously there are so many movies. You know, it's it's kind of hard to grasp that. But but what just 
from a general perspective, you know, what do you, what do you look for when you see an actor that is in a movie, you know, especially with, with two so well-known directors, you know, what, what are the things that you sort of look at when you see, okay, how does, how does, how does, how does the director approach this actor? You know, is there, is there something that sticks out when, when you think about uh, a crossover actor? I think for this week, what I really kept going back to was iconography. And that sounds like such a simple thing to reach for. And I don't want to like give up the ghost on some of the stuff that I'm already going to talk about with some of these actors. But I just sort of looked at what to me is the more iconic role. Um, and uh, the, the one that I really looked at was Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford is the one when I was kind of rewatching a lot of these movies and looking at them is Harrison Ford himself is such an iconic actor. He has all these, he is like, he's an actor that can lay claim to at least two or three, maybe even four kind of iconic roles. Indiana Jones, certainly. I think Blade Runner. I think Han Solo, certainly, but could potentially be bigger than both of those. I even think something like Air Force One is like 90s Harrison Ford is like such an iconic kind of. Well, he was the original Jack Ryan. Right. Uh, yeah, clear and present danger. I mean, th- there's there's kind of 90s Harrison Ford, which is also fugitive. Very... Yeah, fugitive. Yeah, like <laughs> there, there's sort of this mode that he operated in in that decade, and so I kind of go to just that iconography of like, which director when I look back on the, you know, what has time given us, and time has given us perspective. And a lot of these movies, luckily, are pretty old, and we can look back on them and say, like, you know, which one of those movies do I associate that actor more with being in that movie? And rewatch. This is actually kind of a weird week because rewatching them has helped in a lot of weeks. This was a week where rewatching the movies didn't help me as much because I stayed so much in that mode and I felt like my mind wasn't as changed as much this week while I was watching the movies. I kind of went in with a general perception of like, okay, I think this is a very iconic sort of thing. And I, I didn't really have my mind changed that much um, by film and actor by actor. So we'll get into that. I'm curious to see what you guys say as well. Steve, what do you think? Like, how do you even approach this question? I think that's fascinating because I almost, I feel like took the opposite tech i tried to separate the performance from the trappings of the film itself i mean obviously to some extent that's impossible but i tried to just say okay if this wasn't black rain versus uh temple of doom which obviously one made tons more money than the other you know just the performance itself taken on its own which one did the actor do a better job in and that's probably not 100% attributable to the director, uh, but that's kind of the 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 main measuring stick I used. So I think that's very fascinating that we've taken two different approaches to this. I, I wonder how it'll end up. Jeff, are you taking a middle road, or are you or one way or the other? I'm more skewed towards towards what you were saying, Steve. So I I took that approach as well, where I look at irrespective of how good the movie is. How much did they give? And I also, I guess if there is a middle road, it, it is trying to look at the actors and not necessarily just beyond the two movies themselves, the actor's career, right? Where I look at, okay, Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones and Blade Runner. How does that relate to Indiana Jones in Witness or in um, 
you know, Mosquito Coast or whatever, like the just any other movies that he's been in, you know, from similar eras. And is it is it in line? Is it better? Is it is it worse? So I, that that was a big factor for me as well. So I guess that's the sort of wrinkle that I have added to it. But uh, overall, I I did try and and sort of separate movie greatness of movie from performance itself because I do think that you can you can have a movie that doesn't necessarily work overall but can have a great performance and you know the the director has to get the for for all the blame the director can get for the movie not working they can still get that credit for the performance being good so um yeah that's kind of that's that's where I came out but it's um just to for for the the sake of the the format we're just kind of go going to go one by one with all these actors and we're going to we're going to tally it up as we go. We've not discussed this beforehand. So we'll we'll see how how this all shakes out, but this this will definitely be interesting. So I think um and we I'm very very interested to see how this is going to go. Yeah, and and you know, normally Steve has his fun facts and and we don't there's too many movies to go into that, but for some of the much movies, fun. Yeah, too but much for some of the fun. movies that we haven't discussed so far, um we're going to he's going to drop in with some with some little nuggets. And for some of the movies that we haven't discussed so far, we're going to go into a little bit of discussion about the movie itself um, outside of just the performance of the actors. Yeah, so, presumably, if you're still listening to this point, you're somewhat curious to hear what our thoughts are on the movie itself. So we thought yeah. we'd... And I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say. That's the whole reason we did this. So yeah, because so some far, of these movies, I don't think any of us have seen before. Like yeah. Black Rain, for instance. Black Rain was the only one that I had not seen before. And I have thoughts on that movie, let me tell you. But um, I'm kind of glad it's at the end. Yeah, I had not seen Black Rain, and that was definitely the one that was probably the most fun to watch. I had also, and I'm just going to reveal it right off the top, I had never seen Amistad before. I hadn't either. So I watched that for the very first time uh, this week. Um, So interesting. I've got a lot of thoughts on that one, too. So, all right. um, All right, well, let's jump right in. Leonardo DiCaprio is going to lead us off here, as he should, right? Leo. Um, Probably Leonardo the biggest DiCaprio. movie star on here, right? Well, Harrison Ford, I guess. Surely. Well, that's true. Um, but well, one's and, got and, an Oscar. Yeah, to, that's true. But to, to, to your point, Nate, about the iconic role of Harrison Ford, something that's interesting that I think, and I've read some articles about this, the sort of dying of the movie star, right? We're just like actors who could just open a movie you know you they're in the movie people are going to see it right and harrison ford is is that guy right he was a movie star he was in something everybody paid attention to it right he is a movie star and leonardo dicaprio you know is kind of that that he's kind of both actually where he's like that the actor's actor but also is a sort of movie star and he's kind of in that transition period Whereas like today, I think it's because of part of the advent of social media and everything where we we get so much info about these actors' lives. Because it used to be in like the 90s, right? You never, you could see the tabloids and, you know, Entertainment Weekly and things like that. But but you didn't get, you're not inundated with as much as we are now. And so when a new movie came out with a new actor or with an actor you liked, that was big. That was what your kind of chance to see them, to get into their lives. And they would do press tours and stuff on it. But, you know, now we just see actors that we want constantly because they're on TikTok and they're on Instagram and they're on on Twitter. And it's so it's it's not as special, I think. And that's part of why the, the sort of movie star has died down. Uh, but 
Um, I think there was Harrison Ford is, is, is that guy. And then DiCaprio is kind of that transition. And then we don't have really talk about anybody that's sort of in that newer generation, but it's, it's actually, and just since we're starting with DiCaprio, I, there was a book by Chuck Klosterman that came out this year called the nineties. Yeah. And he, uh, there's sort of a thesis of that because he talks about Titanic, uh, in that book, obviously it was this huge cultural touch point of the nineties. And he makes this point where he says that Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of the last movie star in the in the realm of like they were famous. The actor got elevated to a point that they became so famous that there was a hysteria around the actor and the actor then could have been in any movie and people would go to see it just for that actor in like a really big way. Whereas we've transitioned to and I think uh Really, I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done this a lot, where it's not so much the actor that people are going to see, but the character. Like, I think Captain America is bigger than Chris Evans. I don't think that there's a there's a mass hysteria around seeing the next Chris Evans movie. I think for a while there, there was a little bit of hysteria around seeing, you know, the next Avengers movie, the next Captain America movie. It became more about the character, which maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, I don't know, but... To your point, Jeff, it was like the reason that that happened is because Leonardo DiCaprio was kind of the last really big actor right before social media, right before Facebook, where our whole digital worldview kind of changed. Titanic came out when the Internet was still in its infancy, and Titanic mostly was generated through word of mouth, and people saw it multiple times. Uh, Cough, cough, my cousin Steve Uh, (laughs) in theaters. Um, And so we, we... we sort of consumed it in that way, and now we just look at movies differently, and it's not so much based on the identity of the actor. So, yeah, I, th- I think DiCaprio was sort of the last one of those people. Yeah, because you know you could see in a different era, right, someone like uh, Zac Efron, right? Like, he's kind of got that movie star look and a lot of those movie star qualities. And you you could see him sort of taking that role, but in, in today's market, it, it just doesn't quite work. So kind of interesting how that shakes out. But Leonardo DiCaprio. So catch me if you can. Steven Spielberg, Body of Lies, Ridley Scott. We've talked about both these movies already. So not a ton to rehash there in terms of the um, what we think on those films. Uh, for that week, actually, uh, for each of those respective weeks, catch me if you can, Lost to Matchstick Men and um, Body of Lies, Lost to uh, Bridge of Spies. So for whatever that's worth. Now, as far as... And another thing that I, that I should mention, one thing we try to do with these, with these actors, and the reason why I said this list is not all-inclusive, um, is we tried to get actors that were relatively close in the movies, uh, or in, in, in the, that were relatively close in terms of when the movies came out. Because you know, one of the actors is Christian Bale, right? He was in Empire of the Sun, which is a Steven Spielberg movie, which was in 1987. And then he was in uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, which was like 2014, I think, from Ridley Scott. You know, so it's not a really a fair comparison when you're comparing what someone like Spielberg can get out of Christian Bale in his first ever film versus what Ridley Scott can get when Christian Bale has already won an Oscar at that point and been nominated multiple times. You know, he's been in Hollywood for decades. So we tried to try to group them close together. So, you know, Catch Me If You Can came out in 2002, Body of Lies in 2007. Um, you know, all, it was all post Titanic, post all that stuff. So DiCaprio had been around for a while. He he's sort of he he was a name at this point for both movies. And um, you know, it 
for me, just to kind of start off, I, I'll just come right out and say my vote goes to Spielberg on this one with Catch Me If You Can. I think that um, the this was the first time that I truly realized that Leonardo DiCaprio, okay, this guy is an actor and he is a very good actor and is going to have a great career. And Body of Lies, you know, we kind of talked about it with when we talked about the movie in, in that week. It just kind of it just kind of fizzled. You know, there was there was stuff there and there could have been something, but it just wasn't it, it didn't end up being much. And something that is almost uncharacteristic of Leonardo DiCaprio is he didn't really elevate that performance even for because you can say, OK, he wasn't given he wasn't given much to do with, but he can still elevate what he had. And I didn't really feel like Cap- DiCaprio did that. And so my vote goes to Spielberg on this one. I will also vote Spielberg on this one. Um, And again, just looking at the movies, I think Catch Me If You Can, even though it lost that week, I think Catch Me If You Can is a better movie than Body of Lies. Um, And and I think I've mentioned this actually, I've mentioned this in a couple of when we talked about both these movies. I buy Leonardo DiCaprio a little bit more in the role of Catch Me If You Can. I've always struggled with, the roles I've always struggled with Leonardo DiCaprio are the roles where it's Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm a big tough guy. I, I have trouble buying him in Body of Lies. As good as the cinematography is in the movie, I really struggled with The Revenant. Like, Leonardo DiCaprio, outdoorsman, tough guy. Um, I struggle with him in Gangs of New York even a little bit. Leonardo DiCaprio, tough guy. I just, I see him more as Catch Me If You Can, uh, uh, The Aviator, even Wolf of Wall Street. I'd like him more in those kind of roles where... Uh, it doesn't require so much like, uh, you know, muscle mass, so to say, of like, oh, he's this big, strong guy who's supposed to be really intimidating. I just think he works better in Catch Me If You Can. Like you said, Jeff, that was also kind of the movie coming up where the Titanic stuff, that lasted years. I mean, it got bare. I mean, like teenage girls went to go see the man in the Iron Mask because of like how big Titanic was and the beach yeah the beach which is actually actually a movie that i kind of like uh, and it got completely lost in that shuffle of like it was there was just so much hysteria around it this is almost the first movie of his that i think was maybe a little bit separated from that and people did kind of start to look at it as a movie on its own i really remember it that way and i just i think his performance in this particular movie is great plays just the right amount of you know he he looks young he can play that part and that's sort of the part of the whole deception in the movie and i think he just it's just a better performance a better performance and it makes for a better movie i I, my votes for spielberg on this one and to your point he oozes charisma right like that's part of his draw and when you have a role that requires that versus yeah the revenant i mean he ended up winning the oscar for it but that wasn't a role that required charisma it just so to you i i agree with that aspect yeah Despite what I said earlier about trying to separate the the artist's performance from the movie itself, so much of this is going to be dependent on the screenplay and, you know, what kind of character they're playing. And, and it depends a lot on what they're given to do. So to some extent, you know, it's impossible to separate that. But I'm going to make it a clean sweep. It's Catch Me If You Can, I think, easily. Just the range of what he's asked to do in this movie, I think, is far more than Body of Lies. Body of Lies, he starts out a disaffected, disgruntled spy, and he ends the movie a disaffected, disgruntled spy on the run. 
I mean, there are certain ups and downs. He has the sort of a little romance-ish. Um, but for the most part, he he plays the same note kind of the whole time, I think, if I remember right. Catch Me If You Can, there's obviously wild swings in performance from his naive, wide-eyed child watching his father go to work on the bank loan officer at the beginning to this grizzled, tough, but also very, you know, kind of sad character coughing and with that awful hack in the French prison, you know, to being down on his knees looking through the windows at Christmas. It's just, it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole spectrum of emotions that he goes through that he just doesn't do in the other movie. And I think he does a fine job in it. So I'm with you guys. Yeah, that was a pretty easy one. So uh, next, I think this one will be a little bit tougher. We've got uh, Eric Bana. Okay, so Eric Bana was in Black Hawk Down, directed by Ridley Scott, and he was in Munich, directed by Steven Spielberg. And both these movies very well respected, very lots of Oscar nominations. Um, I think Eric Bana was actually nominated for Munich, but was not nominated for Black Hawk Down. So interestingly enough, I was actually talking about because my wife always asks me, you know, before we record or the day of, oh, what are you talking about this week? And so I told her about the Freaky Friday thing and and all this, and and I told her the actors we were talking about, and we we talked about Eric Bana, and it was interesting because she, between the two, she thought Black Hawk Down was what his best performance was, which I thought was kind of interesting um, because I, I actually thought uh, Munich uh, gets the gets the nod here. I give the nod to Spielberg again. And my reasoning for that is we kind of talked about uh, when we when we talked about Black Hawk Down and Munich is one of the movies that we haven't discussed specifically yet. But um, when we talked about Black Hawk Down, one of the things that we thought was a detractor for that movie. And for those that that might recall, it lost to Saving Private Ryan that week. Um, but, recount. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but the. Um, one of the one of the one of the things that we sort of talked about, and that that when we talked to my cousin Karsten, one of the things that he said was was a bit unrealistic, was this sort of just um, special ops bro type atmosphere that was going on around the the um, Navy SEALs that were there and that were helping out in the operation and they were just kind of like they were cutting people in line at the mess hall and they were you know just acting like they're these just better this better than everybody else sort of sort of attitude and and that was seemed to be unrealistic by Carson and his experience and and it seemed unrealistic just watching it and so even though Eric Bana was able to I do think he was able to to elevate that a little bit especially kind of at the end when he sort of gave his 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 big speech if you will uh, all the same you know I think when when I think of Munich and I think of that movie, the, the scene that was the most powerful to me that jumps out at me is there's a scene where um, Eric Bana and his crew are at a safe house and there is a, another crew of soldiers slash spies. I can't remember exactly what they were that were um, in uh, in that same safe house. And somehow through some snafu, they both ended up being there and they didn't realize that they were on opposing sides. But at one so they kind of have to just keep up the charade at least on on Eric Bond and his team's perspective and and uh, as the Mossad agents trying to have to sort of keep the ruse going so they just sort of chatted them up like you would if that scenario actually actually happened and he 
there's a point where they start talking about the conflict that started all of the 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 things in in Munich, and he's sitting there and having this. I think it was in like a stairwell or something. They're smoking cigarettes and this this really deep conversation that they're having. And I just thought Eric Bana was phenomenal in that scene. And that scene is Munich to me. That that really I think encapsulated so much of that movie and why why that movie was so good. So that's why I give give that the nod. You know, I think there's um, Eric Bana has a very subdued acting style, and that's actually something my wife and I sort of talked about. And and it doesn't necessarily work for every role, and I think it worked out well for both of these roles. But when when I think of of those two, and that's that's the scene in Munich jumps out at me before any scene in Black. There's not really even that speech at the end. There's not really a huge scene in Black Hawk Down that jumps out at me where I'm like Eric Bana nailed it. He did great, and that. But I do think that with Munich, and so that's why I gave him the nod on that one. I'm going to go Spielberg again here as well. I think uh, Munich is going to win. I think his performance is, like you said, very subdued. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of layers to it. I think uh, to, you know, to have this guy who's really getting to contemplate the ethics of what he's doing and the way that he sort of plays that through the whole movie and how that evolves through the whole movie, I think is just interesting. We have not talked about Munich yet. I, I love the movie Munich. Uh, the scene that I immediately think of is the uh, the scene where they are rigging the bomb to go off on the phone. And uh, and this isn't That's the most famous one. Yeah, and it doesn't have anything to do with Eric Bana's acting performance, uh, so to speak, but um, the sound design, how the sound cuts out when the little girl answers it and they realize they're about to kill the wrong person. They're about to kill this, you know, this young girl and they run through the streets and the soundtrack cuts out. And I, I may be, you know, judging a little bit based more on just what I think the quality of the movie is. I like Munich a little bit more. I think it's an underrated movie still probably in Spielberg's catalog. But even from Eric Bana's standpoint, I think that it's just a. Uh, it's just a more layered performance. And you know what? And some of that isn't necessarily the director's fault. I mean, Eric Bana and Black Hawk Down is working with a much, there's an ensemble and there's certainly an ensemble in Munich as well, but he's clearly positioned as the main character. He's the protagonist. He's kind of the head of this crew and he has to carry a lot more of the movie. And so for that reason, I mean, even just kind of through screen time, I feel like Eric Bana to carry Munich more, and I think I think it's a better performance than Black Hawk Down. So I give the nod to Spielberg again as well. Uh, I won't make you make you wonder. It's going to be Spielberg again. He's just given more to do in Munich, like you guys both indicated. He just he leads the film, and it's a it's a more nuanced performance. Not that what he's given to what. Not that what he does with what he's given to do in Black Hawk Down is bad. I think he nails it. Um, but he just has more work to do in Munich, and he does a, a good job at it. So that's a Spielberg 2-0, and oh, huh? Spielberg, a, two, two sweeps. Um, now, this yeah. one, though, could be the first one that we differ on. Next, we'll jump into Harrison Ford. So obviously, Harrison Ford... Indiana Jones, been in multiple ones, but Raiders of the Lost Ark being the first one was in 1981, directed by Spielberg, and then a year later in 1982, Ridley Scott directs him in Blade Runner. So very, very close in proximity. Uh, maybe the closest of the ones I have, I can't off the top of my head do that in my head, but the uh, I think that might be the closest of them. So for this one, this might be a little surprising, but so 
with Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones, right? We talked about it. Absolutely iconic. Both these roles are iconic. And Indiana Jones, I think, is is still vastly more iconic. Um, I mean, one of the most recognizable characters in all film history, I think. And that said, for me, I think Indiana Jones, like Harrison Ford isn't Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is Harrison Ford. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, he's very clearly, he's Harrison Ford. He's the cocksure look. He does, you know, the head tilts and the, the weird smirks and everything and the quips and all that stuff. And it's just like, it's very Harrison Ford. If you expect anything from him, you're going to get it in Indiana Jones and all those movies. And that's great. And that's what it's supposed to be. Um, but for me, I'm actually going to give the nod to Ridley Scott on this one with Blade Runner. And, because I think that they're that's the one of the least I haven't seen every movie Harrison Ford's been in, but of the ones I've seen that may be the least Harrison Ford like performance that I've ever seen. He doesn't do any of the any of the cocksure looks. He doesn't do any of the um, sort of like, you know, shrugs and all the stuff that, that he has made famous over the years. His voice is different. You know, he doesn't even he, he kind of changed it a little bit. And it's he's got like sort of almost some sort of weird undefinable accent and it's it's just very different and it works really well and steve i understand from your the fun facts you had that he and ridley scott did not necessarily get along very well on the uh, from when we discussed this movie didn't really get along very well on set but but sometimes that kind of friction can lead to good things and i think in this case it really did not only with the movie itself but with his performance specifically um i think I, I don't think I do give the nod to Ridley Scott on this one for that reason, that it's 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 the least Harrison Ford performance that I can think of, but it's still iconic and it's still great. And, and that counts for a lot. Whereas, you know, it's you know, obviously no shallow Steven Spielberg, no shade on him, but it's really easy to go up and just be like, hey, man, be Harrison Ford. We all know what you are. And I feel like that's a lot of what the Indiana Jones movies are. And that's part of what makes them great and fun. But for the purposes of this, I, I go with I go with Ridley Scott and Blade Runner on this one. I think you're just insane. I think you're absolutely a crazy person. Um, I'm almost going to be as mad as the whole Saving Private Ryan Black Hawk Down debacle. Um, I think uh, you I voted I for Saving Private Ryan. I voted for Saving did, Private. Don't get mad at I me. I had to I had to pull you over to the side. Turn the sirens on. That's what I had to do. And now that's what I'm having to do again. I'm having to like convince you that one of the most iconic performances in cinematic history should probably win that matchup. I, I will say this. I and I, I you brought up something I, I had not thought of. That really is not a very Harrison Ford like performance in Blade Runner. And I do like that analysis. That is interesting. Um as I said right at the top of this episode, I kind of kept getting sucked into the iconography. And I think Blade Runner is an iconic performance. I think it's more an iconic movie than it is an iconic performance. I also think the most iconic performance in that movie isn't Harrison Ford. It's Tears in the Rain, and he doesn't give that speech. I just think Indiana Jones... I also think that what you're describing is Harrison Ford. All the quirks and the ticks and the head tilts and being Harrison Ford. I think Indiana Jones kind of invented that. Raiders of the Lost Ark is what sort of invented that persona. And so that whole thing that you're getting his whole career... I'm going to have to stop you right there. Because, like, he was doing all that stuff as Han Solo for two full movies before Raiders of the Lost Ark ever came to be. 
care, so. but Han Solo isn't a main character, and I think that he really. I think that was Indiana Jones. Raiders whoa, whoa. is the first. But we talked Indiana, about how a, we talked about how Han Solo may be more iconic than Indiana Jones. It, no, I'm the one who said that. I know that's what I'm saying. That. I said we, I'm, just, I'm saying we talked. I'm just about saying it. that I think this is Indiana Jones. Raiders is the first one where we're like, okay, we're going to lean into this, and that's just what it's going to be. Look. But the fact of the matter remains is that Indiana Jones, one of the most iconic movie characters to have ever existed. And I just think that that whole persona, it was invented with that. I And again, the other thing that's, and I, I said this in the Blade Runner week, the thing that always pushes me off Blade Runner a little bit is I actually think Blade Runner 2049 is a better movie. I think it is an overall better movie. And I think his performance also, a very unHarrison Ford-like performance is better in that movie. Doesn't matter. That's... Doesn't matter because when I was preparing for this, I was thinking about the new Indiana Jones, and then I thought to myself, you know what? James Mangold directed that. Therefore, we can't think about it. And so I thought, well, same thing goes with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Same actor, but different directors. I I agree with both of you on this. I agree that twenty forty nine was better. I agree that Harrison Ford's performance is better, but I also agree that it doesn't matter for the purposes of this episode. Brandon just put in the comments, Nate versus the world. That's what I feel like right now. <laughs> I, let, let me just say, I'll, all I'm going to say. Podcast, is we're I, changing the podcast I, for this I, I episode. Should, I should have just, I should have just said, I'm voting for Steven Spielberg. I will pass. Uh, <laughs> I will pass. Now I pass to my, to my cousin and you go. Okay. So my, my vote is Spielberg. Steve, what do you think? Indiana Jones are two of my, two of my favorite movies. I always say last crusade, but last crusade and right. It's a lock lost Ark are kind of co favorite movies. Indiana Jones' performance and Raiders of the Lost Ark and all those movies are iconic. If we're going to talk about the new movies, I think what he does in Dial of Destiny, in terms of showing a, a level of weakness, but also um, acknowledging, you know, what it's like to grow old and what this effect has on your legacy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He does an amazing job with all that. All that being said, I am going with Blade Runner because I <laughs> Nate is so disappointed. He's so disappointed in us. Okay, you know what? You guys put yourselves against Indiana Jones. That'll be the theme this week. I'm, okay, that's I'm shocked. I thought I'd saying. be on. I thought I'd be on an island here. I'm shocked, Steve, with your love to, for Indiana Jones. But okay, but, to be funny. fair, Indiana Jones is a much more iconic character. The Indiana Jones franchise <laughs> is a much more will not will not dispute that. <laughs> will not dispute that. But this is not most iconic character. Right. This is what we're, you know, what our analysis of the the assignment was. And he has, I guess I'm, I'm a big fan of seeing characters go on emotional journeys. He does go on many emotional journeys in Indiana Jones, but he essentially starts the first movie as a treasure hunter who's skeptical of supernatural things and doesn't have a lot of close relationships. And he finishes the last movie as a treasure hunter who's skeptical of supernatural things, even though he's seen them time and time and time and time again. And he still doesn't have that many close relationships. I guess at the end of Crystal Skull, he's now miraculously reunited with Marion Ravenwood. Regardless, in Blade Runner, the man literally starts to question his very existence. He doesn't know if he's a replicant or not. And we see that through his performance the entire movie. I, I just, there's a deepness, um, something beneath, you know, the, the, just the base layer that you can see in his eyes and his face just in the whole movie. So there's nothing approaching that, I think, in, in Indiana Jones. Despite his performance being wonderful in Indiana Jones, I think, again, it's what he's asked to do in the movie. And here it's 
literal questioning of my base existence, and I think he nailed it. I always said you're the smartest guy on this podcast. There's a moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Famous moment. And we even know the backstory. We don't even need to have to do the fun fact of it, okay? Got food poisoning or something, and he was having really bad stomach trouble that day, and they had this big elaborate sword fight, and guy whips out all the sword, he does all the stuff, and Harrison Ford very casually just pulls out a gun and shoots him. That moment is more iconic than anything, I think, anything in Blade Runner. And the fact that you are, like, it's those little tiny moments that are all over Indiana Jones. You're still going to say, Indiana Jones, that his performance in Indiana Jones isn't as good as Blade Runner when we have these little tiny moments. The most famous part of Blade Runner, he's not even doing that. That's not even his part. It's not his lines. Part of the power of that scene, at least to me, is seeing his reaction to what Rutger Hauer is saying, too. But I, I can... I think he Thing can have a more react. iconic Acting performance. Is reacting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, right, I think right, two I, things right. can be true. For the sake of for the sake of Nate's, you guys could be wrong. That's both of those things could be true at the same time. Oh. For the sake of Nate's mental health, we'll move on here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the next one. The next one is Anthony Hopkins. Um, he was in. Amistad by Steven Spielberg that was released in 1997 and then he was also he reprised his role as Hannibal Lecter uh for the movie Hannibal which was uh was it 2001 yeah yeah February 2001. 2001 okay so again Hannibal is another movie we haven't talked about um and what what do you guys think of Hannibal have you guys seen it before sorry if yes. I'm stepping on your questions Jeff but I'd never no. seen it yeah, I saw it a while ago. I my opinion on Hannibal is it is a good movie. It is it is a good movie that is unfortunately compared to the original Silence of the Lambs, which is an absolutely perfect movie. And it's really really hard. I think they made a really good movie. I think Ridley Scott made a made a very valiant effort make a really good movie maybe even a great movie by some estimates it was never going to be better than silence of the lambs and i think that is kind of what just hurts it overall i mean i'll i'll back off saying what i want to about the about anthony hopkins performance i think it is just one of those movies that when you are setting yourself up to be compared to silence of the lambs better be an incredible sequel and i think it's good but it's it's certainly nothing compared to silence of the lambs which is just to me is just like a a perfect movie and it's it's really hard to beat that and i completely agree with that sentiment and i think thomas harris who wrote the book silence of the lambs and then wrote the sequel hannibal like you occasionally see this uh with artists you know, whether they be writers, directors, uh, whatever the case, where they just can't get past something. And it essentially just kind of ruins their whole career for them almost. And Thomas Harris is that guy with Hannibal Lecter. Um, he wrote Silence of the Lambs. And, well, he wrote Red Dragon. Then he wrote Silence of the Lambs. And then he just can't, after Silence of the Lambs became a movie, and he, it just took off. He could not get past Hannibal Lecter. He's written a couple other books, but but nothing that has been 
anything very well received. All he's written are the, I mean, he wrote Hannibal and then Hannibal Rising and then they you know they made all the movies and stuff and I just think it it sort of kind of just torpedoed his own career because he just was became he couldn't get past this character. I think he knew he couldn't ever top that character in those stories and so that's where he went. And and then I think that kind of translates into the movies. Like, it's just like you said, Nate. I mean, you're you're going up against Silence of the Lambs, right? And I think with Hannibal, I did not come away thinking it was it was all that great. And maybe it's it's the fact that it was being compared to Silence of the Lambs. There's just no way to remove that from the equation. But you know, all the same, I, I still think that it just there was. I mean, Gary Oldman's Mason Verger, it just cracks me up. Like, he just hams it up the whole movie. And, you know, he's got his, like, half-eaten face, and he's talking in his apartment, and it just, <laughs> it, I mean, it just, it makes me laugh. And I don't feel like in a movie like that, I should be laughing unintentionally, right? If they want to throw in some levity, go for it. But, but that, yeah. And so that always kind of took me out of it. And then again, you know, and this can kind of lead into the performance with, um, and this kind of lead into with, with Julianne Moore as well, who's who will be right after Anthony Hopkins, but um, with both her being Clarice Starling and Anthony Hopkins then reprising his role, you know, both those characters, the actors want Jodie Foster won Best Actress and Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for Silence of the Lambs. So you're coming in after that and you're you're going to be compared to that. And I always think, especially because uh, Sound Slams in 1991, so 2001, 10 years later, right? He finds Anthony Hopkins reprises the role. I tend to find, and you see this more with comedies when there's a big gap, but, um, you know, even still, it, it can show up in other movies as well when there's a, a, a long break in between an actor playing a performance, especially an iconic one. It becomes so iconic itself that, the actor no longer plays the character like they did the first time. They they impersonate the character that's been impersonated so many times, right? Like that's why um, Zoolander two, Anchorman two, those movies didn't come off as well because those characters, in my opinion, of course, but like Ron Burgundy and Will Ferrell, he invented a, an unbelievably hilarious character in Anchorman, but then. 14 years later, however long it was after they made the, when they made the sequel, um, he's no longer playing that character. He's, he's playing a, a, he's impersonating himself playing that character. And Anthony Hopkins is, is way too talented to kind of fall into that trap fully. But I do think there's a little, little element of that because he's, it had been 10 years and there's, you know, He's seen so much of it. It's so much a part of pop culture. The Hannibal Lecter, like, oh, I ate his liver with some fava beans. And, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's so much of that going around. It's hard to remove yourself from that and go back into being that character. Um, and so I think that kind of made the, the performance just a little, a little less than what it was in Silence of the Lambs. And then um, Julianne Moore, as much as I love her, and I think she's a fantastic actress, um, you know, Jodie Foster is one of the greats and it's, it's hard to, to go up against that. And if anybody maybe could do it, you know, Julianne Moore is one of the people who could try, but it's still just going to fall short and it's, it's unfortunate. 
Um, but, but so I think all those factors kind of go into Hannibal being, being just a lesser version of, of what it wanted to be. And so, you know, that uh, I wasn't uh, super impressed personally. And yeah, but just uh, before we get into the actual thoughts on the acting, that's the, on the movie itself. I'm just going to say this. So, so does it mean Amistad in the Lost World win Medfall? Um, we'll see. Sounds like you were very disappointed in both of these. I had a fun time with it. Again, I'd never seen it. Uh, to my great shame, you guys are both going to ridicule me as you have before. I've still not seen Silence of the Lambs. So oh, I went in. Wow. I know. I know. You've watched Hannibal without watching yeah. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. in the podcast. We're stopping the podcast. Yeah. We'll be back we in three hours. We'll be in two hours. <laughs> well, I tell you what's interesting is that Hannibal, I think, is. Silence of the Lambs is a horror film. I'm not going to, like, not say, but it's it's much more methodical than that, whereas Hannibal feels like they really leaned into, like, let's make it a horror film. Um, there's some campiness almost, there that you see in yeah, a lot of horror movies. Yeah, there's some campiness. Like the pigs it, and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, it kind of goes almost over the top with sort of the, the gore and the violence, whereas exactly. what, I think what made Silence of the Lambs, a big part of what made it so brilliant is that so much of that was sort of spoken but unseen, and you kind of leave it, it sort of leaves it up to the viewer of who this person is and kind of how his mind works, and then just sort of seeing it, it it wasn't as, there's, Steve, you, okay, so I'm going to, sorry, Steve, I'm going to spoil like the 40-year-old movie. <laughs> it's, Feel free. The, 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 very, the very last line of Silence of the Lambs. Uh, when he's on the phone with Clarice Starling, and, and he and he says, "I have to go now, Clarice. I'm having an old friend for dinner." That is a scarier to me. That is like scarier and more inviting into the audience than anything in Hannibal, where you're actually like seeing gross, gory stuff. It's the suggestion of it and the way he speaks about it that's that's better in Silence of the Lambs. Well, because it, it it almost like the exact parallel in at the very end of Hannibal, right? Because he's on the plane escaping again and the little kid comes up and he's got the human brains in a little cup that he brought on the plane with him that he's eating and he's asking the kid if he wants to try it which is kind of a horrific thing but at the same exactly what you're saying you know it's the we're actually seeing it and it's a it's more of a gross out yeah. thing than it is a horror thing i totally i i hadn't really put it in that context but i totally agree and I, I, I mean, I'll just, I'll just say right now, I actually think that I will, uh, and it feels like I'm almost going against what I was just ranting about with Harrison Ford. I actually think I will give it to Amistad. Like, I think I would give this one to Spielberg, just because I am so Hannibal, and 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 I'm, I really am talking about Anthony Hopkins's performance. He became so indebted to that that uh, Jeff, I thought what you just said is great. That it's, it's not. It's not a character anymore. It's like a it's a, it's a caricature. It's it's like he's doing an impression of his own performance rather than like doing the performance again. And I mean, it's not really his. I, in terms of grading the movies and grading the directors, I'm giving it to Spielberg. Ridley Scott and Spielberg, like that's you know they don't. I don't know how much they have to do with that necessarily, but. I think Amistad just kind of has the advantage here just because it's, you know, it's a different kind of performance. Um, it's obviously a little more subdued than, than you know, than something like Hannibal, which is, I, I think, really can get into Anthony Hopkins. Again, that's what's great about Science of the Lambs is that 
such a subdued, almost like quiet performance at times. And I really like that about Anthony Hopkins. And I feel like it's a little bit more of that in Amistad, uh, certainly than it is in Hannibal. And I just think Hannibal as a movie is so weighed down by the fact that it's a sequel to this movie that is just brilliant and perfect and is still like the standard for police procedurals and any like the entire true crime thing of podcasts and movies and Netflix series like it still all comes from that movie and how fascinating that movie was and just everything about it so I, I, I personally give it to Spielberg in this particular category having not seen Silence of the Lambs I'm going to defer to your all's expertise as far as his his character uh, his performance of the character I think that also makes it easy because if the measuring stick is who gave a better, you know, which director got a better performance out of their actor, well, he's already, he, meaning Anthony Hopkins, has already been this character. So what did really Scott really have to do to bring it out of him? Sounds like he didn't do anything to elevate it or make it better in your guys' mind. And in contrast, in Amistad, I absolutely loved his Martin Van, or Martin Van Buren, his uh, uh, John Quincy Adams. Uh, he was, he, you're right. He kind of, I was worried that he was going to overdo it at the beginning when he's first introduced. I don't know if you guys rewatched. Well, Nate, you had never seen it before. Jeff, I don't know if you rewatched it, but when he's first introduced, he's he playing a, just a doddering old fool, essentially with presumably a little bit more going on. You're hoping, but he, he's like getting turned around and led around by the arm. Cause he doesn't know where he's going and talking to like plants and shit. And, uh, <laughs> so I was worried that it'd be too hammy, too corny. But by the end, when he's given his speech to the Supreme Court, I was like, oh, my God, this is this is everything I wanted Lincoln to be. If this is the better historical epic by Steven Spielberg of the the two 19th century American, you know, slavery tales, if we view them together, this is everything Lincoln should have been. Lincoln, whereas it it felt too much too on the nose, you know, a lot, which was one of my complaints. And it felt too much like Hamilton with people like saying the plot or filling you in on the backstory just via exposition dumps. This this was just fantastic, and it made me um, made me want to learn more. I bought a book about John Quincy Adams based because of this freaking movie. So anyway, yeah, that's my vote. Uh, Amistad, Steven yeah, Spielberg. Yeah, so that's another clean sweep for Spielberg on this one. Um, and to your to your point, Nate, I sort of love the. Um, aloof old dude role and when you can play it so well like i just i don't know it's just something about it i just like love seeing that um another good example that always comes to mind is um robert duvall in a civil action if you guys have seen that movie oh yeah you know where it's just like a good movie they're they're always like doing something else you know like i think at one point you talked about he's talking about i think at one point john quincy adams anthony hopkins character just he's like cutting flowers or something and talking about as he's talking and it just it always seems like it's just kind of they have something better to do but the better thing that they have to do is always something super mundane and not important so it's just it's always i don't know it's hard to kind of encapsulate why i like that sort of tropey character but it always really works and i hopkins specifically i just think nails it as, as john quincy adams sorry i didn't want to cut you off there go ahead Oh, just, you know, to that point, the scene bef- the night before they they go to the Supreme Court where he and Sinke 
and obviously everybody else are in there talking, and he's just trying to set it up for him. You know, this is it's a big deal. What's going on tomorrow? And it, it, there's it's very weighty. You know, what's going to happen? It's going to have ramifications not for not only for you but for everybody. It, it, he he not only seemed to like convey a sense of importance of it, but it was also just the the way that they were able to connect on a human level. I think they both did a fantastic job in that scene. So I guess that's some foreshadowing also, but anyway. And, and I think, you know, it was just, yeah, it was a subdued performance, but still powerful. And when you can, when you can do that, you know, that's just the, that's the mark of a, of an incredible actor. And Anthony Hopkins, another one of the greats. I mean, dudes won three Oscars. There's like a handful of people Mm -hmm. in the world that have, that have done that in history. Um, so he was nominated for for what? this for Amistad, mm-hmm. I believe. Let me double check that. Yeah, while you... I believe you're correct on that one. And and to your point, Steve, also about the historical epic, uh, it being it being Spielberg's best historical epic. I, I remember the first time I saw Amistad, and I, um, I mean, I was pretty young when it came out, so I couldn't go see it in theaters. But I, it, it was not that well received, especially for Spielberg at that time. You know, and it was, I remember seeing that, the movie, and being like, what the hell are people seeing that isn't just a great movie? And maybe it's, and it hasn't ever gotten to that. I mean, it's been 25 years now since that movie, more than that, 26 now. And it's, it hasn't been, normally you see it's on some corner of the internet, right? Like, let's revisit Amistad and why it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, it seems really kind of forgotten, that. Right? Yeah, but it it truly is like a really really good movie. I mean, Matthew McConaughey coming off a of Time to Kill in his like lawyerly best, Anthony Hopkins like we Sweet, just talked about, goofy looking mutton chops. Yeah, and you know, Jaimon Hansu who was still pretty new at the time, who we'll talk about here in a minute, um, given a, just a really strong performance. And it, you know, it was a brutal movie. It was a good movie. It was a weighty movie, and it was just. Yeah, I, I I was shocked once I finally saw it, uh, even at a young age, to know or to 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 see that it got those the sort of mixed reviews that it did. Um, so maybe I'll have to go back and read some reviews and see exactly what they were seeing. Um, but yeah. So anyway, um, so with that, we we've got a a sort of crossover crossover here with uh, <laughs> Julianne Moore, who was in uh, Hannibal directed by Ridley Scott, and then also in um, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, directed by Steven Spielberg. Now, as just as we talked about, right, where a, a, a when you're, you know, you come up to the plate with one strike, essentially, when you're trying to replace Jodie Foster from Silence of the Lambs. And when you're, it's basically two strikes when you're not only doing that, but you're, you're doing that in a movie that's trying to replace Silence of the Lambs, right? Or come up against it. And then the same she's dealing with the same issue in the lost world right how do you follow up jurassic park simple answer is you don't and the the lost world is what happens when you try to lesson the lesson the studios continue to not (laughs) not (laughs) decades later (laughs) um but you know and so just kind of despite what i was saying about hannibal the only thing is that in terms of Julianne Moore and her performances in these movies, putting Hannibal up against the Lost World makes 
Annabelle look like Silence of the Lambs. As much as I love Jurassic Park and I love watching dinosaurs on screen, um, The Lost World, it, it's just not great. It's just not. And even though Hannibal wasn't as well, you know, like The Lost World, a lot of its issues, I think, is that kind of, and Spielberg admitted this, Steve, right? I think you've talked, you've talked about this when we talked about The Lost World on the show. He just kind of, he was resting on his laurels. He just went through the motions and made a sequel that he thought was going to be popular because he knew that he did the first one so well and it was so popular. Uh, and that that shows on screen. And Julianne Moore, her character is infuriating in that movie, making just horrible decision after horrible decision with no... She tries to explain herself, and the logic is awful, and it's terrible, and she's annoying because of it. And if you can make Julianne Moore annoying, then you're not getting my vote. Because there's no way in hell that an actor of her talent should be annoying in a movie. Um, and and even though she's no Jodie Foster in terms of her role as as, as Clarice Starling in, in in Hannibal, she's she was still she was still you know gave it her best shot and did well and and better than than in Sarah Harding and Lost World. So I'm I give it to Ridley Scott on this one. She's the original character. Uh, the, the entire problem of every Jurassic Park sequel. Why do you keep going back to the dinosaur island? First movie, you understand why the characters are going there because it's new. They don't know what to expect. And every subsequent movie, the problem with every single one of them is why do people keep going back to the dinosaur island? And she's the first one. She's the originator of that bad character. She's the first one in the first sequel who goes to the dinosaur island when she knows bad stuff happens there. Um, I agree. I you know, I've never been a huge fan of Lost World. I'm not a huge fan of uh, Hannibal either. I think she probably is doing a little bit more in Hannibal than she is in Lost World. I agree with Jeff that I think that it's uh, she's probably more annoying in Lost World. And I just think that I this is a weird comparison because I don't think either of these movies is even close to her best performance. I think she's I toyed with making this a push because they're both bad. But. Yeah, they're they're both not very. I mean, if I if I honestly if I could tie one, this is probably what I would tie. Um, if you're gonna make me pick, I'll probably pick Ridley Scott and I'll say Hannibal just because it's maybe a slightly better movie and a slightly better performance. But neither of these is her best work, and I think she's a, a really good, talented actress who uh, just doesn't have the best material to work with here with an either movie. I first of all, small sidebar. Hannibal, since we didn't really talk much about it. Despite it not being a fantastic movie, it has some of the most beautiful shots in it. Just about any freaking movie I can remember, especially in Italy. When Ridley Scott is doing these long takes of some of the, the piazzas in, in Florence, just gorgeous. Anyway, sorry, I just had to say that. Because Hannibal is going to win this one as well for me. Not having seen Silence of the Lambs, seeing Jodie Foster's iconic performance, I, you know, I've seen you know, clips. It's been long enough. It's in pop culture. I, I got a general idea of it, but you know, I can't really compare it. I actually kind of liked her Clarice Starling in this. So I thought she she played a good, uh, competent foil to all of the the big tough men characters around her which I think is kind of one of the points of the Clarice character, right? She 
she's a, a woman in a men's world. And I thought, <clears throat> I thought, um, um, Julianne Moore, sorry, complete. I, I feel like Ray Liotta here at the end of, at the end of the movie. Uh, and Julianne Moore did a fantastic job with that. Uh, well, fantastic movie, a bit much, but definitely much better than the, as you guys pointed out, kind of annoying person that she plays in the lost world. I, I will never forgive her for bringing that baby T-Rex inside that stupid RV camper thing. God. Like, what oh, a decision God. that was. That was a decision. Yes, it was. <laughs> my God. Anyway, so one thing, though, I wish they'd stop making Julianne Moore do accents. Like, what, why is she doing this accent? I guess because Clarice Starling. But my first, I think, well, at least the first time I can remember actually being truly exposed to Julianne Moore was her as a guest star on these uh, TV show 30 Rock. I don't know if you guys remember, if you ever watched that show, but she had a terrible Boston accent in that. So what? why do people keep giving such a fine actress terrible assignments? Anyway. Well, yeah, so if you go watch Silence of the Lambs, because Clarice's accent, they talk about this to much greater effect in the uh, first movie in Silence of the Lambs, is that they make a big deal about her accent, and Jodie Foster mm. does it much better. There's a fact that Hannibal Lecter actually points out to her that she's trying to hide. And he's like, yo, no more than one generation removed from good old white trash. Like, mm. you're trying to hide it. Um, and so Jodie Foster kind of teases that little sort of uh, almost like West Virginian yeah. kind of Rust Belt accent. Not quite Southern, but, you know, it's a... It's it's much more layered and nuanced uh, in Silence of the Lambs, so I, I yeah. highly recommend going. Well, to I mean, Krenler's character, Ray Liotta's character, is constantly making the the terrible reference about you know cornbread, corn bone, you know, referencing her her heritage. So I get it, but yeah, she hammed it up too much in this. But if we're gonna give it uh, a vote, then if we're gonna make a, a vote happen, then yeah. Which is the entire it. purpose of this show, so we're making right. it happen. No pushes, no pushes, no ties. No pushes. Well, the first Queen's first clean sweep for Ridley Scott. Uh, and now another crossover crossover with uh, Jaiman Hatsu, which we've already talked about, was in Amistad, and directed by Spielberg in 97. And then he was also in Gladiator, directed by Ridley Scott, came out in 2000. Now, we talked about, we had a whole episode uh, about Gladiator. So... With this, with with these two movies, um, this was another one that I think was was pretty even. Uh, I don't know if I say pretty even, but was um, it was closer. And I, for me, I give the nod to Spielberg and Amistad, and I do that because Jaiman Hansu, his role in Gladiator was functional. There was no real big character arc there, and it wasn't some huge, you know, massive story plot that he had. I mean, he kind of dropped some tidbits about his history or whatever, but we never get any sort of huge resolution to his storyline or anything like that. He just, you know, he is, Steve, you mentioned it when we talked about Gladiator in that episode. There's, what, 26 minutes of screen time where Russell Crowe doesn't speak a word? And uh, so Jaiman Hansu's character essentially exists so that we have a mouthpiece in that mo those moments, that sequence of the film. And but in Amistad, he's given much more to work with. Now, I guess I said, before switching to Amistad, the I will say, though, that 
that even though that role seems to be purely functional, I do think Hansu elevates that himself because of his talent. Um, he might be one of the more underrated actors in Hollywood. Dude just seems like he freaking nails every single I was movie. thinking that the whole even, time I was watching Amistad. So I had a very interesting conversation with someone uh, about this the other day, and this is unfortunate that this is the way that it is. Um, a friend of a good friend of mine, uh, we were going back and forth when we were talking about this, we had the exact same thought that like he just seems to nail every single role. I do wonder if, and I'm, I'm not saying this is a good thing at all, I do wonder if his name being difficult to pronounce for Westerners and the way that it's spelled has actually hurt his career a little bit. Um, because we all know it, and we because we he's like an actor that we like. Um, but my buddy was saying, he was like, man, I just don't like, it's hard because you don't like feed his name and it like just Westerners, Americans who are ignorant, want to learn how to pronounce his name and then he did you know nothing ever really came of it i don't know if that's true or not but i i have wondered that about him just because he's such a great actor and he nails everything that he's in i mean there's been experiments that people have done right where they've taken um sort of more ethnically sounding or or written names and put them on uh, a resume and then taken the same resume and put just you know fred smith on there right and that resume with the you know quote-unquote normal american name is the one that gets the callback so i mean there is something to the idea of of just a a name giving some sort of innate prejudice uh from from certain people so i wouldn't be surprised if that's if that's a factor um and you know because it's yeah but uh he i mean even something like guardians of the galaxy right he's such a small role but he freaking nails it and it's just like that's that sort of became an iconic scene of its own and it's just it's anyway um so yeah that's that's my my german hansu soapbox but he uh and he's given more weight he's given more things to do in amistad and so i i just think that overall even though i will say that i think Ridley Scott was able to help him sort of elevate the performance of that role. Most of it may be the fact that that role was just not written to be all that great. And it was as great as it could have been. But uh, whereas, you know, the Amistad character was a very much more pivotal part, obviously. Um, but the, it's, yeah, it's a, um, or I'm sorry, his character in Amistad is a much more pivotal role. And and so it's it's the Yeah, I give it to I give it to Hansu there. I uh I think um Bang I mean I think I'll probably give it to, to Spielberg. I think he just has more uh more to do and he's really front and center in that movie. And again, like you said, Jeff, I think his role is just sort of functional in Gladiator and he's really good in it. Like he takes, you know, like you said, he takes that really just sort of functional role. Um and you know I just kind of feel again, I just can't get over how I just feel like he should be. I, I'm I would brought this up, sorry to like go back to this. He brought this up. Um, there was like an article where he kind of talked about how like uh, he's in another really good movie called Blood Diamond, uh, also with Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but like he's kind of the I main love, character. I love Blood Diamond. Yeah, so like and the film really focuses on him, but Leonardo DiCaprio got the nomination for Best Actor, and he got a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. 
even though he had more screen time in that movie. And he kind of talked about like just sort of those general prejudices that, and he's not hating on Leo, but it's not Leo's fault, but he kind of talked about how those prejudices have kind of held him back in his career. Um, and so I like seeing him in Amistad a little bit more because I feel like that's a performance where the movie really hinges on his performance. And I feel like he just such a good job with it. And um Again, I think it's just one of those situations, as we've seen with a number of these actors, where it's like, I feel like he has more to do in that movie. Um, he elevates a really functional character in Gladiator, but I just think it's his role is more important in Amistad, and I, I, I give it to Spielberg. I feel like I do this a lot when I have to go after you two, but you, you've said basically everything <laughs> that I was thinking in a much more eloquent way than my, my brain would let me piece it together. Almost verbatim, I was thinking almost verbatim what you just said about him elevating a a supporting part in Gladiator versus you know being the main fulcrum of the entire plot in um, Amistad. And one thing neither of you specifically called out that I want just wanted to add is he does so much acting with his face and his body in in both of them, but in Amistad especially because he's speaking Mende, which I would hazard to guess that most Americans do not speak. Uh, at least I know I don't. And Spielberg makes the very interesting and it has to be you know, intentional choice to not give us subtitles when they're speaking Monday. I assume I should have looked in my books. I didn't do as much pre- preparation because of the no fun facts thing, but I assume that was a choice to make us feel a sense of, you know, alienation and isolation, much like the enslaved people would have felt, you know, hearing English being spoken and not being able to understand that. Regardless, it has quite the effect, but he conveys so much still, even without being able to understand the words he's saying, that it, it I just, I absolutely loved his performance in this. It was great. Nothing will top, n- nothing in Gladiator will top his, um, his, I can't remember his exact words, but when he stands up in the in the box and is like, you know, give us freedom, essentially. But um, and then his again his physical acting, just the opening shots when he he stabs the sword down through the one slaver and the the shot looking up at him in the rain with all the blood coming out. Oh man, he's conveying a lot there just with his presence. So yeah, it's a Spielberg for me. That. I think that wraps up the week here for Spielberg, but we'll go ahead and talk with the last one here. And the last one is Kate Capshaw. And before we get into Kate Capshaw, the, the, the movie that, so this was the one movie that I hadn't seen uh, from all these movies and uh, black rain. And I, I remember when we, we first came up with this idea and we talked about Kate Capshaw and I, because I, I saw that was a crossover with Black Rain, and I saw the movie poster, and it's freaking man, it's like the just pure '80s, and I'm like, man, this movie looks like it's gonna be nuts. And so we decided on these these actors. I'm like, okay, it's Black Rain. I'm really looking forward to this. And oh my god, cannot tell you how much I love this movie. It's <laughs> this movie. I actually watched it last night. It's man, a trip. It's it's just pure freaking 80s michael douglas with a mullet riding motorcycles chain smoking cigarettes talking to you know uh just trying to solve crimes talking to women in clubs like oh man andy garcia hey, hey, with babe. some 
Hey, babe. Hey, babe. <laughs> Andy Garcia with some weird accent. All these like, um, oh, man. And uh, it was just like, I don't know if I necessarily loved the movie for the reasons that the movie was trying to get me to like it, but uh, uh, I just, I thought it was just awesome. And even, even to the end, right? Like the very classic, it ends with the, the, the standard eighties ending of the main character walking away, giving some form of um, indicator, you know, thumbs up, fist pump in the air, etc. Right. Like just, just, pure 80s nostalgia i freaking loved it and it was um and then you know there was the there was an unexpected little bit the the um japanese actor that would that played the detective that they worked with and when he went over to japan uh ken taka takakura i think was his name and um he was fantastic. He was really good. I'm like, where is, how, how did this guy not do anything after this? Like, apparently uh, he was famous in Japan. I mean, he, usually that's the way it goes yeah. right? when they get a crossover actor. So, and it's, that's not shocking at all. Cause that dude has some talent. Like yeah. he, he stole he's the best the part show. of the movie. I think. Absolutely. He absolutely stole that show. And he's one of the things that made me, um, the happiest that we actually watched it. Cause I was like, I've never heard of this guy. And he's just fantastic. And he really elevated uh, that movie. It could have been just kind of a, of an 80s schlock fest. And to a degree, it certainly it still was. But he gave it that little bit of that little bit of pullback into being like, OK, there's some seriousness here. There's an actual yeah. good movie here. And, and that it all kind of balanced out in a weirdly good way. And Michael, ja- or Michael, Jack- Michael Douglas was was over the top. Um, but he, you know, because there was that subdued performance right. going, you know, on opposite him, man, it just worked. And I just, I had a great time with it. Yeah. Maz, I can't remember exactly, like you said, is the actor's name, but the character, they call him Maz. He, he brings a level of sincerity to it that, that really, really makes it actually worthwhile. But it, oh man, it's a trippy movie. Andy Garcia is just, just eating, he's all over the place chewing the yeah. scenery as they say right <laughs> oh, he's man. just having a fun time in this movie until whoever, a certain point and whoever that guy uh the japanese actor who played sato he was doing the same he was oh. chewing i mean he was going like he was so, like uh arnold schwarzenegger as uh mr freeze in batman level yeah. of just like crazy yeah. villain like he was it was it was awesome yeah, he, uh, well, sad fact, I learned he was actually dying of cancer when he shot this and hadn't told anyone, and he died, like, right after this movie released. Oh, man. But he was also okay. very famous in Japan, apparently. The The backstory on this one, if we had time for fun facts, there'd be some fun ones. They they shot a lot of this in Japan, but a lot of the, the themes that are kind of explored in this, in the 80s, you know, there's this big kind of Japanese-American rivalry as Japan is has, you know, re, you know, resurfaced from the post-war devastation that, you know, we caused on them because they attacked us. Regardless, they, you know, they were now beating us in a lot of electronics manufacturing and all kinds of things, and there's this kind of real tension, and uh, a lot of that, I guess, affected the filming of this movie, too. And 
Ridley Scott and company kind of got kicked out of Japan. Not like literally we're, we're told to leave, but basically things got more expensive. Their filming windows were cut way shorter. People were less cooperative. And eventually they're like, why don't we just go back to Los Angeles? And so they did. But it's a fun movie. I'm glad I watched it. Michael Douglas. I am not a Michael Douglas fan. I feel like he overacts in everything. He's, he's just fine. He's fine. He's something. Have you ever seen it's... The Game? Oh, I love The Game. He's great in that. He's he's definitely great in that. That kind of like changes my perception of it a little bit. But overall, I agree. This is David Fincher, right? Yeah. Yeah. David Fincher is and, excellent. I mean, Michael Douglas won for Wall Street. And like, I think that movie's overrated as hell. I, I do, too. I, yeah. I just... I don't think that movie's very good. I think that's like bad eighties, but somehow <laughs> Gordon Gecko as a character was yeah. considered good, but I don't know. Um but yeah, I mean if, if if Michael Douglas wasn't born into being Hollywood royalty, he would not have nearly been as famous as he was. Fair. Fact. You know, I and, think I just said something. And Go ahead. the sorry if I uh, fun fact <laughs> my <laughs> own fun fact. You're stealing my fun only, facts. The only reason Michael Keaton is Michael Keaton is because Michael Douglas already uh, existed as a famous because of his dad. Because oh, Michael Keaton's right. name is actually Michael Douglas. It's Michael, Michael Keaton yeah. Douglas. And uh, once, uh, but when he became famous, you know, Mark, Michael Douglas was already Kirk Douglas's son, and he couldn't be another one, so he just went with Michael Keaton. <laughs> I just love when they're in the. At the beginning of the movie, when they're in the bar in New York or the restaurant where the assassination happens, the Yakuza assassination, and right afterwards, they, him and Andy Garcia pull out their guns and start running, and one of them leans to the bartender and is like, "Call nine one one, babe." <laughs> as yeah. running out of the door, and they, <laughs> it's like classic '80s gunplay too, where it's just like the one cross arm over the uh, over the other as they're like dual fisting these snub nose thirty eight pistols or whatever that are just like. Yeah, I mean, it was just like every 80s trope you could imagine was in that movie. It's kind of like looking at it as, you know, we've talked about this with Ridley Scott, um, kind of getting sucked into like, ooh, I need to make a movie like this. We talked about this last week with um, White Squall, where it's like there was this period of his career where it was like he, film and Louise fell in there, so like, not as much with that but like he definitely has these movies in his catalog where it's like he was clearly just like i'm gonna try and do this very popular hollywood thing i'm gonna just you know put all the little touch points and do all the little things and play all the beats and it doesn't work out and then he just moves on to the next thing and this is like for like cheesy 80s stuff it's like i'm gonna try and do that i'm gonna do like one of those 80s like silly action movies and this is what we got and then he's like all right i'm never gonna do that again on, on to the next thing and he just we've noticed that a few times in his career and it's like very apparent here yeah um but to transition into the actor involved here kate capshaw so black rain ridley scott uh 1986 right is that, is that i think that's 86 uh i'll check the notes while you're talking yeah, so it doesn't um, really matter it's, it's right around and there. then uh Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Spielberg one. And that was 83, 84, 84. Um, 84. So again, pretty close together. 
for me, I give the vote to Ridley Scott on this one. Um, I think the all the women in the Indiana Jones movie, the most recent movie notwithstanding, because I haven't really seen it, um, they feel, and this is not to discredit the actresses at all, but we, you know, Spielberg's uh, is is sometimes blind spot for for directing women. I think uh, a lot of them just become interchangeable in these Indiana Jones movies, and it's uh, it's it's unfortunate because there are some talented actors in there that could have done more. But to me, I, I just you know might as well have been you know could have been Karen Allen, could have been uh, Kate Capshaw. It didn't. I don't know that it really matters uh, to, to Steven Spielberg with the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, but I do think that with Black Rain, uh, I thought Kate Capshaw's role was was done really well. She was almost sort of this semi-femme fatale, sort of 80s. She had a really, um, especially with the hair, she had a very much Michelle Pfeiffer, Catwoman, Selena Kyle vibe, even though this was before that movie. Um, so it, it was it was 89 when it was released. So it was probably okay. filmed around the same time. Yeah, so um, it was, uh, yeah, it had had similar vibes to me from that one. And, but you know, her character was when she first got introduced, I was and you know, Michael Douglas locks eyes with her across the club. I was just like, Oh man, here's, we're going to have this problem again, where it's just going to be, you know, standard woman damsel in distress or some sort. And Michael Douglas is, you know, the big brash American is going to come in and, and save her. And that's actually not what happened. That's that was the it sort of um, subverted my expectations a little bit on that, and she had quite a bit more agency than I was expecting when that character was introduced, and you know she was sort of a, a pivotal role in the movie, had some some very key information, etc. And uh, I thought she gave a really good performance. And I haven't seen a ton of Kate Capshaw movies, but from the ones I have seen, I think this might be the best performance I've seen from her. I mean, she's not super super you know well-known actress beyond her indiana jones role really which is probably her most famous and iconic so maybe we'll get into that conversation again but uh i I, i'm giving the nod to ridley scott on this one i thought i thought she was actually really good in black rain and um yeah that's what i'm going i think i think i agree i will actually give it to ridley scott here as well certainly her most iconic role is temple of doom um it's interesting it's funny that you like bring up talk about Spielberg's treatment of women and kind of like how he uses them. It's funny that like, I feel like he kind of even falls into it a little bit in Temple of Doom with Kate Capshaw and he married Kate Capshaw. Kate Capshaw is his wife. It's like, he's to this still, day. Yeah, to this day, they're still married. And I know they weren't married at the time, but it's still kind of like, man, you still didn't even figure it out there. You still weren't able to like, you know, well, work your way around those. That, those wasn't tropes. he? Wasn't he married to somebody else, and then he divorced her, and then got together I, with I Kate think that's right. after that movie? So, I mean, he was obviously like infatuated with and and quickly in love with this woman, and yeah, still still couldn't get it to elevate beyond like token female in Indiana Jones movie. Level. He was married. He was married to Amy Irving, and they divorced in 1989. So after Temple of Doom, oh, okay. I thought so, it five years later. Kinda... So uh, yeah, and I don't know if that's okay. Like so maybe official, it wasn't. Like maybe they, maybe they were separated. I don't know. Sure. 
yeah so maybe i'm, I'm overselling that a little bit steven still, saw yeah. black rain in the theaters and was like you know what? <laughs> that's true there it is <laughs> yeah Rid that. this is the one i this my intuition it. was right it's, <laughs> it's been five one. years but we're i'm i'm calling her back up <laughs> <laughs> oh man we cracked it this that's yeah, the, this podcast we cracked we should rename here. this podcast solving spielberg <laughs> yes solving spielberg oh that's fantastic amazing. so steve give it to us i don't think there's any competition here yeah she's given things to do in black rain Whereas she screams the entire movie in Temple of Doom. Like, her character has become a stereotype, this Temple of Doom character. Uh, it's one of the the big complaints about Temple of Doom, right? Is her character doesn't really do anything except just scream and get in the way. It's a horribly sexist per, you know, portrayal. She is entirely pointless in that movie, really. Uh, Temple of Doom. Black Rain, like you said, she has some key pieces of information. I still am not entirely sure that her character, that what she does is necessary to the plot, but I don't really care because it's when she's in it, she's good. She has some really fantastic line readings, I thought. I, I wrote them down. Like One of them was just kind of funny, uh, the way it was a, a humorous thing, but she delivered it so well when she teaches Michael Douglas the word gaijin, you know, meaning foreigner, but also kind of like brute or savage, you know, and not refined. And he's like, Gaijin, what, you know, what does that mean? And she says, you know, Gaijin, a foreigner, like me, or like you or me, or you. <laughs> just the way she delivered that was just so beautiful. But yeah, I don't think there's any question. This is by far way better. I mean, she has, she actually acts in this movie instead of screams. So, and that is, that is 100% the screenplay and the director. I mean, that nothing... I'm not besmirching her portrayal in Temple of Doom. I don't think it's her fault at all. So I think it's she just wasn't given anything to do that was worthwhile. So so where are we? Oh, one other so, thing. Sorry, completely unrelated. Do you guys know what the title Black Rain means? Well, they explained it in the movie. Okay, well. It's like the, the nuclear fallout. Yeah, yeah it, it I, actually made the rain black. Okay, you're right. They didn't explain that. I watched the movie like a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... So that inspired me because I remembered that phrase, Black Rain, and related to nukes and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Oppenheimer had come out around the same time. And so I, I Googled it and I found it. There's a really awesome documentary that everybody should go watch on Max, the one to watch for HBO. It's called uh, White Light, Black Rain. And it is all just um, the words of people that live through it both people that we dropped the bomb on Japanese people and like the pilots and bombardiers. It is super powerful. Don't watch that if you're in a bad state of mind, but it is very powerful. I think every human being that lives in the nuclear age. So all of us should watch it, especially Americans. It's we're the only people that have used atomic bombs in combat, but you're, you're saying that is not uplifting. We should not <laughs> watch it. And we're not, Okay. I've that certainly, heard that. that really does that. actually sound interesting, but it's it's, the way you tackle that. Super I would fascinating. not watch it if you're in a bad state. It sounds like uh, you guys read the book in school. I think a lot of people did the like letters from Vietnam or whatever that that book is called. Um, the wait, letters from Iwo Jima. Um, it's not Vietnam. It? I thought it was Vietnam. Maybe it was letters from Iwo Jima. I can't remember. But... What's the what happens in the book? 
I I don't know. I mean, it's, it's fiction. War. Is it nonfiction? No, it's 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 war. It's just it's literally letters from people that were in the war and just. Mm. Um, so maybe it was letters from Iwo Jima. Let me see if I can. I'll look it up and see because I'll remember it by the cover. Uh, um. Yeah, I think that was it. Okay. So yeah, it was letters from Iwo Jima, not letters from Vietnam. But that's um, a good one. Yeah. So, but same kind of deal, right? Because it's just it just no extra wording or anything just literally all told yep. from people who lived it as it was going it's on. it's very powerful very very powerful it, quite the double feature with oppenheimer there you go so with that though the this week's winner is steven spielberg by the score of four to three oh uh, that's pretty tight closer than i thought overall between the three of us and all the all the seven actors steven spielberg got 13 votes Ridley Scott got eight. Um, but that, and I promise you, we give you the duel of the greats promise. We did not plan it this way. But with Spielberg winning this week, the we're uh, dead tied, right? We're dead tied right oh, now. That is man. seven, seven to seven. Oh boy. So we talked we, about we had what a, would happen last week. We talked about this, but we, we did had, not. Yeah, we didn't plan. Yeah, we it. had a couple. We had a couple different options for what we wanted our final episode to be, uh, or not. This won't be the final episode, but our final like ranking episode. Because if if Ridley Scott had won this week, then obviously, you know, there's not too much of a point in going. So we're like, well, is there some sort of a, you know, could we make it a, a um, final Jeopardy week where we get more points or something? I don't know. We were we hadn't really discussed. We wanted to see how this week played out, but. So now we did discuss also what would happen if it was a tie. So for the tie next week, what we'll be doing is um, a, a sort of something we had kind of been saying we could possibly call a, a we rest our case type of deal, right? So Nate will be the, the impartial judge, jury, and executioner. And Steve and myself will take our respective directors that we um because you know as we've talked about throughout the show that part of this started with i was kind of the quote-unquote spielberg guy and steve being the quote ridley scat guy and so we're each going to take one movie from those directors that we have not discussed yet this um this season and plead our case for why we think that's going to be better so uh, we have not because we haven't really um and we didn't know if we were actually going to need to go this far we haven't really discussed so Steve, do you know? I know what my movie is. Do you know what your movie is? Can we reveal those, Steve? It really depends. I mean, I definitely have a movie in mind. It's listed in the show notes and everything. But it depends on what the criteria is for the judge. Like, like, what are we really testing here? Is it literally just which movie's better? Nate, what do you what do you want to hear from us, Nate? I think that what you need to do, my opinion, is in order to convince me, you just need to bring a movie or a couple movies. And you need to talk about how why this movie that we have not talked about just in a general way is symbolic of this director and their talent and their craft and why you think it proves that they are the superior filmmaker. So I'm going to kind of leave the criteria up to you guys because I don't even know. I have not looked at what movies you're choosing. Um, so, so do you want to be completely surprised or do you want to see do you want, would you like us to reveal it now if we if we can? I don't know. What do you, what do you think? think? I think we should reveal it because I think he needs to watch the movies too. That's a good point. Maybe I should That's watch a good point. Okay, so, okay. T- so tell me the two movies that you have picked. 
All right, so of, the, the one uh, movie that each of you have picked. Sure. I My movie is going to be War of the Worlds from Steven Spielberg. Mine is Kingdom of Heaven director's cut. It has to be the director's cut. Okay, so I have not, and I will just say up front, and we usually talk about this during the episodes, so I've seen War of the Worlds many times. I've never seen Kingdom of Heaven. Director's and cut. Steve has emphasized several <laughs> times that he needs to watch the director's cut. Um, so I Brandon's trying to influence the jury here. Yeah. <laughs> he just me for the episode. Um, so I will watch Kingdom of Heaven director's cut, and I will try not to. I, War the I mean Steve, you and I saw War of the Worlds in theaters. Yeah. Um, I actually remember remember this conversation of leaving the theater and us decided like if that really happened, like would we try and save our grandparents, <laughs> or, would, or would they just be kind of a lost cause? Um. So I I um I remember that movie pretty well. I will watch Kingdom of Heaven, the director's cut, and I will try not to. I'll try and really go into it next week of like, okay, these are these two movies, and I'll try not to be biased in my opinions because I like War of the Worlds a lot, and I'll talk about that next week. But I might love Kingdom of Heaven. So I'm excited have, to rewatch War of the Worlds. I haven't seen it. I have not seen since it came out. I've not seen Kingdom of Heaven, so I will, I will watch cut. that as director's cut. I have, I, okay. so yeah. I will. If we're doing theatrical release, I I cede the floor to you, sir. <laughs> War of the Worlds will win. It's not really that bad. It's just there's key parts that are just left out. Yeah, I've I've I'm I'm aware of the movie Kingdom of Heaven, even if I haven't seen it. And from everyone I've heard from, our producer Brandon included, um, <laughs> the director's cut is is the way to go with that one. It's a common theme for Ridley Scott, it seems, but. It, it really, really is. He, I'm afraid Napoleon is going to fall into that as well. It's going to come out and feel unfinished and too short for the story it's trying to tell. And then next year, there'll be a director's cut that'll be like, oh my God, it's the best movie ever. But anyway. I think part of the problem with some of those movies where really Scott does the director's cut is there are movies where the studio is going to meddle for one reason or another. Um, but like a historical biopic movie... I feel like studios are are gonna be are gonna let him go on that one because that's Oscar bait, right? So that maybe we'll see when that yeah. movie comes out. But that's kind of how I feel. So yeah, that'll this will be interesting. Right, bring, so we will. Bring your, I will watch the movies. Bring your best arguments. I'm ready for them. Okay. Are you going to give us like topics to address, or yeah, just you want we, us to present I, our own? I think I'm gonna let you guys present your own. I think I want this to be. I'll probably have like a list of things that I'll put in the show notes that maybe that I notice, but I really want to hear like this is my grand argument. This something that Spielberg does in War of the Worlds. This is why he's a superior filmmaker, or something, some theme explored in Kingdom of Heaven is what makes Ridley Scott. I want you to to decide. That was the whole premise of this podcast. I want to leave it to you two to decide. Try and convince me. Should I, would would we do a, a cross examination where we try and take down the other person's? That's too like much prep work. This is already homework that I'm looking forward I, to because I was thinking about this too. But no, because then I have to watch War of the Worlds with a much more keen eye. Whereas here, I just want to re-enjoy it. Fair. fair I mean, I'll, okay. if you really want, you can cross examine me, but I'm not going to prepare for that because there's not enough hours in the day. I can cro- like I can come up with some questions to ask both of you. Um, that's probably fair. That, that I might keep as a surprise, that I might not even put in the notes and just sort of keep as a surprise to throw you off. Track. I would say don't put any of them in the notes. And just yeah, I'm with him. Yeah, don't just yeah, don't let, let us know anything you're thinking. Our arguments, 
and then you give any questions you have or any questions that come up during our arguments. Right. I think that'd be fun. All right. I hope this I'm, is fun. It's, it's, it's important to note, and this is a good week to go into it. I'm still very mad at both you about that whole Indiana Jones fiasco. <laughs> so, like, I can really go at it and, like, really savor that that emotion and just like skewer you guys i'm gonna come i'm gonna come in next week thinking both of these movies suck and i love war of the worlds so i'm gonna be prepared to just dare he dare he like this movie after saying indiana jones (laughs) all right all right i'm excited so that next week we will rest our case on this season we will it won't be our last episode we'll have another kind of sort of wrap-up episode where we'll just kind of discuss uh just in general oh yeah i'm gonna tell you guys what what i think about the house of gucci (laughs) yeah we did kind of plan that as well for regardless of of what the case the last episode we would just kind of have a lot of quick hits for movies that we didn't discuss good or bad uh so so we'll we'll throw a little bit of that in there um so it won't be the last episode next week but it will be the last head-to-head episode for the season uh, where we'll we'll decide the the official winner um from nate's decision so definitely looking forward to that it's going to be fun Come back. I hope you, if you stuck with us all this season, definitely come back next week to get the, get the final answer. So thank you all so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back next week to give the, the final, the final draw there and, and get our, our, our final assessment. Steven Spielberg versus Ridley Scott. Come back next week to find out the answer. Uh, until then, thanks for stopping by and uh, we'll see you next week.